Well, if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 12, and we're continuing our study today of our study this week of, of the life of King Saul, the first king of Israel. And we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 12 today. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, I, I thank you for your word today. I thank you that in your good sovereignty that you have chosen to communicate to us. Unlike the, the ancient gods where uh, their followers really didn't know what they wanted from them. There was confusion. We don't, we don't live in the dark. We know what the gospel is. We know glorious truths about you because of your word. And Lord, we know about your covenant promises to us. These promises of redemption. These promises that you've made from generations ago. That you have remained true to over the years and throughout all the generations. Lord, we thank you for the covenant promises that you have given to us. Lord, we pray that as we dive into the study of your word, Lord, we just ask that your spirit would be in our midst, that he would be doing that work that really only he can do, which is convicting us of sin when we need conviction, encouraging our hearts when we're discouraged, but, but also and ultimately giving us those faithful eyes to see the truth. So Lord, to that end, we just invite your spirit to come. I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word but I would simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. Well, last week, if, if you were not with us, we, we pushed into how to respond in failure. We asked what, what we should do when, like King Saul, we get off to a rocky start. Well, this week, it's, it's maybe the, the flip. We're, we're going to push into how, to re, how do we respond in victory. King Saul and Israel are coming out of a major victory. And many would argue this was the high point of King Saul's reign. Therefore, what do we do when we win, when we're on the mountaintop? Uh, Andrew Whitworth, who's also known as Big Wit, uh, he went out on top. He had just won the biggest victory of his career. If you don't know who Andrew Whitworth was or is, uh, he was an, an all-pro uh, offensive tackle in the NFL for 16 seasons. That's a long career. He started with the Cincinnati Bengals, and ultimately he went to the L.A. Rams. And, and he really had a, a great career, but, but very much a storybook ending after 16 years in the NFL. He, he had just won the very prestigious NFL Man of the Year Award. And if you don't know what the Man of the Year Award is, it's given once a year uh, to one of the players uh, based upon uh, the, their, their community service and, and philanthropy, uh, their community service impact in their community. If you're keeping track of this, last year Dak won it. It's a big-time award. Uh, Big Wit was, is from Louisiana, played at LSU, and so he had invested a lot into his home state. But then when he was in Cincinnati, uh, he had invested a lot in the Big Brothers and Big Sisters program. And then when he went to Los Angeles, he he'd invested heavy, heavily into the homeless uh, problem in Los Angeles. So, but in addition to winning the Man of the Year award that year, Whitworth had just won or just helped his new team, the Rams, beat his old team, the Cincinnati Bengals, in Super Bowl 56. It was a close game, a great game. They won 23-20. to 20, But at the end of it is when he retired. Well, but what a moment, right? 
Like, what a way to go out. What, what a great victory. What a, what a mountaintop experience. Last week, again, we pushed into, what happens when you get off to a rocky start? But today, the, the nation of Israel is riding high. They're, they're on the mountaintop. They've just had this glorious victory, this glorious win. And 1 Samuel 12 is important because sometimes we win, right? Like, 1 Samuel 11 is important because sometimes we lose. But leading up to 1 Samuel 11... King Saul was off to a rocky start, if you remember. Now, if you're new with us, just to kind of set up where we, we are, the, the people of God have been blinded by the wisdom of the world. And, and here's their, their blindness. They bought into the lie that, you know what, if we, would just, if we could just have a human king, then all our major problems would be solved. He would protect us from all these oppressors. We would be safe. Everything would work out if we would just have a human king. And so they pleaded God to do away with this system of judges and let's bring in to a king. And, and so God reluctantly, as we're going to see again today, he gives in to this request and he gives them a king. But, but he gives them a king according to the wisdom of the world. He was tall. He was handsome. He looked the part. But even though he was tall and handsome on the outside, he was small on the inside. There was something wrong with his character. There were things on the inside that led us to believe and were kind of red flags to him being a good king. If you remember the story of King Saul, he lacked maturity. He lacked perseverance. He didn't have a genuine heart for the Lord. He lacked things like vision, and, and he, uh, he had trouble once he became a king uh, of setting up the kingdom, of developing an army, of establishing defenses around the country. In other words, he was off to a rocky start. That's where the nation is. That's where King Saul is leading up to 1 Samuel 11. But last week when we looked at 1 Samuel 11, his fortunes had changed a bit. If you remember from last week, the, the Ammonites attack a village, and they make these great threats, but then Saul displaying, I think, great wisdom and great leadership abilities, certainly great tactical skill. He, he defeats the Ammonites, and this great victory just scatters them. It, it was a great win for the nation of Israel, and that's the context of 1 Samuel 12. They're in the context of a win, of a great victory, and it's in that moment that the prophet Samuel decides to fade away from the scene. This is his farewell sermon, if you will. This is kind of his final admonition to the nation of Israel, and then he's going to fade away from the scene. And here's his message. In victory, even though they're in this very high, victorious, mountaintop experience, he says, in victory, recommit to the covenant. There's kind of six turns to his sermon. And the first thing I want you to see is his call to recommit to the faithful life. Look with me at the, uh, 1 Samuel 12, 1 to 5. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom uh, have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whom, whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said to him, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day. 
that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Again, 1 Samuel 12 is the prophet Samuel's kind of farewell speech. And it's a final major charge to the nation. Now, Samuel kind of fits into a couple of different categories. First off, he's a prophet, but he's also Israel's final judge. And if you remember that this is a period of transition in the nation of Israel. They're moving from the time of the judges into the time of the kings, and that's kind of his lasting legacy. He's the final judge that helps them in this transition. But he's also a prophet, meaning that not everything that he says is the word of God, but there's these moments were these thus saith the Lord moments where he speaks the word of God. And, and that's what he's doing here. So, so God has raised him up for him to speak the truth of his word to his people. But also he's made him a judge. And, and judges were brought up in a different way than a king. And that they were brought up in these moments for these particular problems. And they led the nation similar to a king, but just for that season. So their leadership was really less based upon the institution of the the monarchy and more their influence over the people. And so that's what judges were. So he really falls into both categories of a judge as well as a prophet. And he serves as as a transition from the period of the judges to the monarchy. But he does it reluctantly. And even here in these opening verses, he goes back to that uh, to that reluctance that they cried out for a king. But God only gave it to them reluctantly. First Samuel 12 is this prophetic charge. And he's going to call the nation to recommit themselves to the covenant. Because God has, has made this sacred contract with them. And God always keeps his end of the contract. But they don't always keep their end of the contract. So he's calling them back to recommit to the covenant. And, and in order to get there... Samuel kind of takes two steps to to set up this charge to recommit. The first step that he takes is he reviews this grievance of requesting a king. God comes back to this over and over again. He wants us to clearly understand that, that this wasn't something that he desires, that he thinks in many ways this is a mistake. So he reviews that grievance. But number two, he puts himself on trial. Now, if you think about it, it's kind of interesting, but, but this judge, the final thing that he does as the last judge of the nation Israel is that he judges himself. The, the book of 1 Samuel is, is clear that the people's request for a king, it's in this category of wisdom of the world. It's not in the category of wisdom of the word. God only grants it reluctantly, and God knows better than the people know about the negatives of having a king. That's how the wisdom of the world works, Right? But the wisdom of the world, you just see the positive, right? And you get excited about this thing. If we could have this thing or elect this person or get this thing or, or own this thing, then everything would, be, would work out. That's the wisdom of the word as we focus on the positives. But the wisdom of the word sometimes comes in and it shows us the limitations of that thinking or the nuance of that thinking. It shows us the weakness of that thinking. It says, yeah, maybe those good things could happen, but also these negative things could happen. In this case, they saw, listen, if we'd have a king, then he'll protect us from all the oppressors around us. Where God comes back and says, actually, he's actually going to become your oppressor. (laughs) So he balances the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of the word. Prophetically, Samuel reminds them of their blindness regarding putting too much hope in a human king. Now, they might not like the content of his message. He's rebuking them. But they can't deny the character of the man. And that's the second step that he takes, is he puts himself on trial. 
Because he understands the importance of the moral authority of a leader. He puts himself on trial. You see, when a, when a judge or a prophet or a king or a manager or a pastor or a president or an elder or a boss or a politician, if any of those people have character issues, it affects their ability to lead, right? It should affect their ability to lead because character matters. And what, Saul, what Samuel does is he goes back to the importance of moral authority. Now, on a, on a major side, one of, the, I think, the glaring weaknesses of the evangelical church in our country is that we have a lot of, we, we have a, a lot of compromised moral authority in pastors and Christian leaders around this country. You, you can all think of examples of some moral failing of a pastor, right? And, and listen, we, we have to be careful here because no one's perfect, Okay. No pastor, no elder, no Sunday school teacher is Jesus. So, so if you're putting hope on them as if they're Jesus, friend, that's a fool's errand. They're going to let you down in some way, okay? So, so that's part of the problem I think that we have is, is we elevate people too high. And then when they fail us, when they don't live up to that standard, we're disappointed. Sometimes the problem is on us. No one's perfect. However, the evangelical landscape is just littered with people who've given themselves over to things like greed or, or, or even falling away. And listen, I want to be clear. A pastor who's, or some Christian leader who she's made a lot of money writing books, and then she criticizes Christianity and falls away, that's a moral issue. Let's be very clear on it. It's not that she's now enlightened on something. That, that's a moral failing, okay? When some megachurch pastor lives his career, making a lot of money being a pastor of some big church, and then he falls away and criticizes the church as if they're wrong. That's a moral failing in the life of that man. You see, so many Christian leaders have gotten used to being cheered by the wider culture instead of being cheered by the Lord. They can be harsh. They can be dishonest. Again, no Christian leader is Jesus, but they're, they're going to have faults. They're going to have struggles, but every leader Their leadership is connected to their moral authority. However, Samuel is different. He's this glorious example of a faithful life, a devoted man. You see, in this moment of victory over the Ammonites, he goes back to the importance of integrity. In fact, his final act of judge again is to judge himself. So Samuel highlights that calling is not an excuse to privilege. Calling is actually a calling to a life of sacrifice. So his role as a leader was more important than any fleshly desire he had. His role as a leader was more important than personal fulfillment. Friend, if you're a parent or a teacher or a boss or a church leader, or or you influence people in any way, Samuel's example is important here. He's calling you to recommit to the faithful life. Samuel was devoted to his calling. Are you devoted to your calling more than your desires? Again, No one's going to bat a thousand in this category, but at your funeral, what is your family going to say about you? On the mountaintop of a victory, take a moment to recommit yourself to the faithful life. Okay, number two, remember God's past faithfulness. Look with me at verses six to eight. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. 
So after this uh, opening charge to recommit to the faithful life and then establishing his moral authority to give them this message, Samuel then calls his people to remember God's past faithfulness. You see, the, the story of God's relationship to his people is this story of covenant faithfulness. God has made all these promises to his people and he's remained faithful to those promises. In fact, there's this long history, if you go back into the history of the Scriptures and God's relationship to His people, it's this long history of Him fulfilling the promises that He has made. He has been faithful to His redemptive promises. That's the story of God's relationship to His people. Now, God's people haven't always remained faithful to their end of the deal, but God has always been faithful to His end of the deal. That's an important point because if you ever doubt If you ever doubt that God is with you in a trial, remember how he brought his people out of slavery. But like if you ever doubt, if you ever doubt that God is for you, remember how he raised up Moses to lead his people. Like if you ever doubt that God is good, remember how God's people cried out for salvation and God blessed them with salvation. If you ever doubt that you have a good future, and we slip into that sometime, remember that God took his people to the promised land. You have a relationship with the King of Kings, the creator of all things, who fulfills his covenant promises. When you're on the mountaintop of a wind, recommit yourself to the faithful life. But if you're struggling in that moment, if you're struggling with the flesh and you think, well, maybe this wind entitles me to pursue some sort of fleshly desire, or maybe that wind is leading you to pride in yourself. Remember God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is what's going to transform your mind in that moment. It's God's faithfulness and remembering that. That's what's going to soften your heart in that moment. You see, what Samuel did on going back to the historical record is this time-honored tradition in the Bible. You see, from the prophets to the psalmist into the New Testament to the New Testament preacher, someone like Stephen, this is their pattern. They go back and they summarize the Bible for us. They go back and retell the story. And what they're doing there is they're demonstrating that God is faithful to his covenant promises. And that becomes a tool in that moment to soften hearts so people can turn back to faithfulness. Now, technically, stay with me on this. Technically, what they're doing there is what's called biblical theology. Now, if you think, I'm not a theologian. Well, listen, theology, all it is is the study of God. So if you have thoughts about God, if you have opinions about God, congratulations, you're a theologian. But there's different types of theology. Some of you have probably heard of systematic theology. Systematic theology is just asking these different questions of like, okay, what happens in the end times? And then looking at all that Scripture has to say on it and then determining what God teaches on that. But, but then there's more narrow theologies. You, you can have Old Testament theology and New Testament theology where you're looking in a more narrow way. Okay, what does the New Testament say about something? Or what does the Old Testament say about something? And you can actually get more narrow and specific to that. You can have Pauline theology or Petrine theology, which means, okay, what, was, what is Paul's theology on this question? Or what's Peter's question on this, on this issue? But biblical theology is this broader experiment. It's this broader experiment of saying, okay, what does the Bible as a whole say about all these issues? And specifically, what are the themes that you can trace throughout Scripture? And that's what uh, the prophet Samuel is doing here. Now, Now, the reason why I camp out on that is to highlight that there's a link between the method and the goal. The method is biblical theology. 
tracing the, the history of God's word, connecting all the dots, demonstrating how God has been faithful to his people. That's the method. But the goal of the prophet is to soften their hearts to help them recommit to the faithful life. Do you, do you see that connection on what the prophet is doing there? Now, I, I camp out on that because we can still do that today. Like, like there's going to be moments where you don't desire faithfulness. That's called Monday for me, okay? There's going to be moments regularly in your life where you don't desire faithfulness. In those moments, you have a tool in your tool belt of going back and remembering the historical record. Going back and recalling all those ways that God has been faithful to his people and faithful to you in order to spur your faithfulness. Remember God's past faithfulness. Now, when you do that in that moment, functionally, that's going to help you repent of idolatry. This is the third point, is to repent of unfaithful idolatry. Look with me at 1 Samuel 12, 9 to 10. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of, Haz- uh, commander of, the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Asherah. Now, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. So Samuel traces this redemptive theme of the story of the Bible. He camps out for a moment on this theme of idolatry. You see idolatry over and over and over in the hearts of the people of God. Idolatry is simply worshiping or loving a creative thing as if it is the creator. That's what idolatry is at its core. It's loving this created thing with this love or this worship that really should just be reserved for the creator. And we do this all the time, right? And actually, we can do this with good things, right, parents? Like you can love your children in like some sort of ultimate way. And all of a sudden, this good thing, your children, it becomes idolatry. You can, you can love a boyfriend or a girlfriend in a way that is idolatrous. But the problem in it, on, on top of just being false worship, is whatever that thing is, it's not the creator. And it's not going to bear the weight of your worship of the creator. In other words, it's always going to let you down. If you love something in an ultimate way, in the way that you should only love God or worship God, it's going to let you down in some way. Worship at its heart is love. And so we see idolatry when we love something in this inappropriate way. However, people have always been tempted by idolatry. They've always been tempted to worship idols. And that's for a series of reasons. First off, you can sometimes control an idol or manipulate an idol in order to get what you want. You can't control God. And also, the problem with, with idols is, is there's always this temptation to fit in. Like, like there's always forces in a society that want you to love something in an, up, in an ultimate way or in an inappropriate way. Or to worship something in, in a false way. There's always this peer pressure to fit in. And over and over again, the people of God in the Old Testament, it says in verse 9, that they forgot the Lord their God. You see, when you slip into idolatry, that's what's happening. You're forgetting the Lord your God. You're worshiping something in a false way. Young people, let me just make one comment to you. Like every generation before you, your grandparents, your parents, like every generation before you, just like the people of God in the Old Testament, you're going to have to make a choice between faithfully following the Lord or being popular. 
you can't have both. They couldn't have both in the Old Testament. Every generation ahead of you couldn't have both. You're going to have to make that choice. What is the way that you're going to go? Now, in mentioning these names and these people, Hazar, uh, the Philistines, the Moabites, these are the nations that kind of encircled the nation of Israel, north, south, east, and west. Samuel's drawing this historical circle around the people of God. And what he's saying is, is they're being tempted to worship the other gods by all the people around them. In other words, it was difficult to resist it. It was difficult to resist that pressure because there's pressure coming from all sides. But if we're going to commit to the faithful life, to live in according to God's covenant, we have to repent or turn from the sin of idolatry. And it creeps into all of our hearts. We have to confess that we have forsaken the Lord for another. We have to cry out to God to deliver us from our sin. Repentance is faithfully turning from sin and to God for salvation. So when you're on the mountaintop, if some form of of sinful love is in your heart in that win, repent and turn to the God of your salvation. In other words, when you win, what, what what is the love in your heart? What's the ultimate love in that moment? If it's not God, then turn from unfaithful idolatry. Number four, remember God's present faithfulness. Not just his past faithfulness, but his present faithfulness. Look at 11 to 13. And the Lord Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Japheth and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now, behold, the king whom you have chosen, from whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So after unpacking Israel's history of idolatry, Samuel continues to move forward in his story of redemption from the past and into the present. In verses 11 and 13, he's referencing the time of the judges. These were different judges uh, in the book of Judges. So uh, uh, Jerubbabel is another name for Gideon, and he's in in Judges 6 to 8, and he helps free God's people from the Midianites, and then he destroys the Baal altars. Barak is uh, with the support of the, the prophetess Deborah. He, he defeated Caesarea and the Canaanites in Judges 4. And then in Judges 11 and, and 12, uh, Jephthah, he defeats the Ammonites. And then, of course, from last week, King Saul, he defeat, defeats Nahash and the Ammonites. So he's going forward into the present. There's something important for us to see here that God has not only been faithful in the past, he's faithful in the present. And the prophet is reminding of this. He's reminding uh, that, that God's people, that not only has God been faithful to them in the past, but he's faithful to us in the present. Right here, right now, God is still faithful to us. It's certainly true that we need to know our history. And knowing that history, that history of redemption, it helps soften us in those moments when we don't want to be faithful. But we also need to remember our present. We need to keep in mind how he's been faithful to us in the present. Guys, this means that intentionally we're to remember how he's faithful to us. Like in those early morning moments of prayer that you have in God's word, praying through your day, you intentionally thank him for how he's been faithful to you. Do you foster this heart of gratitude, recognizing all the different graces of God in your life? This is what he's calling to you. Are you intentional to thank God for the good that he's done for you? Is that part of your daily prayer life? When you win, do you praise God for the victory? 
He's not going to shift gears here. And he's going to call us to reflect on warnings and to reflect on signs. Look at uh, 14 and 15. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Samuel's now uh, transitioning to where not only was this called to recommit to faithfulness, remember how God's been faithful in the past and in the present, he's now going to reflect upon some warnings and some signs. In, in his call for his people to recommit to faithfulness, this call includes some warnings here, and it's going to in- include a sign. You see, if, if they don't heed the warning, they're going to be in risk of God's discipline, divine discipline. And just like in Samuel's day, when you don't fear, when you don't serve, when you don't obey God, you run the risk of divine discipline. Notice that Samuel also links the people with the king. He says here that, listen, you as a people, if you're not faithful, that's going to affect the king. Now, if you know the story of the kings, most of them were not faithful, right? And so their unfaithfulness then affected the people. America doesn't have this covenant relationship with God like, like the nation of Israel had. You, you can, we maybe have a better parallel to the Moabites and the Edomites, the, these unbelieving nations around Israel. But, but in both of those instances with Israel, but also the unbelieving nations around them, when they were unfaithful, God reserved the right to discipline them. He can do that today to us. When we're unfaithful, God can reserve the right to discipline us in very heavy ways. So it's a healthy and sobering uh, reality to reflect upon biblical warnings. But in addition to the warning, the prophet Samuel is going to give us a sign. Look at verse 16. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before you. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord and he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for for yourself a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. Guys, Samuel's kind of dropping some prophetic bombs here, right? He's getting real in their face about some things. He's calling them to a high calling. And to give it credibility, he talks about his own moral authority. He goes back to the history of God's people. But but then he gives them this sign, this miracle to validate the prophecy. Harvest time was not a time of rain. But here in this moment when they didn't normally have rain, a miracle happened and this this thunderstorm blows through. The, the, The sermon is validated by the miracle. Now miracles, by definition, are these very unique things that happen outside of the normal rhythms of nature. So maybe in some sense you can say, well, man, miracles happen every day. Well, not in this sense, okay? Miracles don't happen every day. Like, that's the point of a miracle. They're very, very rare. And when they happen, we're supposed to kind of, our antennas are supposed to go up and we're saying, okay, what, what is God saying here? That's how we're supposed to respond to a miracle. Now, now if you interpret that, in any way that's contrary to Scripture, you're misinterpreting it, okay? And people do this all the time. Like, people can think they see a miracle, and then they say, well, you know what? I think that means that all religions are the same, and they all lead to God. That, that's what God is saying. 
I have no problem at that moment saying, you're wrong. God did not tell you that. You're wrong, honey. You're interpreting it the wrong way. Why? Because that goes in contradiction to the word of God. You're, misunder- you're misinterpreting what God is trying to say in that miracle. But, but they get it here. There's a miracle here in order to validate the word of God. And it's consistent with the word of God. It's not in contradiction to the word of God. And it's a warning. It validates the warning. But here's how they respond. This final section. They recommit to fear and service. Look at verse 19. Then all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Let's stop there. They got the point of the sign. They got the point of the miracle. In verse 14, Samuel called on the people to fear the Lord. They believed and they feared Him. They feared Him more than any of the other gods of all the other nations. They feared Him more than all the flimsy kings around Him. They were contrite over their sin. Do you see that? You see, in that moment, they confessed their sin by asking for an earthly king rather than trusting the heavenly kings of kings. They recommitted to fearing the Lord above any other God and above any other king. And Samuel gets really practical with him. Like he pushes into the heart. He says, yeah, yeah, anybody can just say something with your lips. But he gets into the commitment of your heart. Serve him and fear him from your heart, from, from the core of your being. Friends, he wants you to follow him with your heart. And he still wants your heart. Recommit your heart. Look, look with me now, 12 to 25. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wicked, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel ends with the good news. This is the good news of this passage. And it begins with Samuel's commitment to pray for them. He had warned them, he had shared the word of God, he had called them away from this superficial outer faith. It's not genuine, it's not heartfelt. And he warned them about unfaithfulness and how it impacted not only them individually, but them corporately and collectively, even impacting the king. But again, he ends with the good news. And here's the good news of this passage. That for God's glory, God committed to never abandon his people. That's the good news of this passage. For God's glory, God commits to never abandon his people. He's going to remain true to his covenant promises. That's the good news and the hope of this passage. He's not going to forsake Israel. No matter what trial they face in the future, the king of kings would be with them and he would be for them. The creator God would never leave them. Why? Because God is committed to his glory. God knows that nothing else is more glorious than him. He's committed to his glory. 
And He knows for you, if you pursue glory and happiness and some other lesser glory, some other lesser idol, it's going to let you down. He knows His glory is more glorious. And so based upon His glory, He commits to remain faithful to His chosen people. He will never abandon His elect. If you are born again, then His loving kindness will never leave you. He will always be with you. He will always uh, be for you. He will preserve His church. No matter what happens around us, He will preserve us. And He's glorified as more and more grace is poured out upon us. You see, when the world looks at you and, and they see all your faults, they see all your brokenness, but then they see God preserving you. God is glorified in that moment. You're not glorified but they say they must, he must be worshiping a true God, a, a glorious God. God is glorified when he makes broken people whole. Amen? Isn't that the story of your life? Like the story of your life is not how glorious you are, but how glorious God is and what he's done in your life. In light of his covenant faithfulness, he's calling you to serve him. Friends, he, hear the prophet's plea. When God takes you to the mountaintop, when you experience the victories and the wins, serve him. In victory, recommit to the covenant. Friends, life is filled with ups and downs, right? It's filled with highs and lows. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some, right? We all experience this, okay? And he has a message for us in those high moments and in those low moments. King Saul was off to a rocky start. And we saw what we were to do when we get off to a rocky start. We also see here what we're to do in those high moments, those victorious moments, those moments when we win. When you're, in the, when you're on the victorious mountaintop, take a moment for your soul. I, th- I think that's the plea here. Just take a moment for your soul. In victory, recommit to the covenant. What I mean is, is to go back to all those life-giving gospel truths that you know to be true. Go back to the good news of Jesus. Go back to how God has been faithful in the past and how He's been faithful in the present. Don't rush past those moments. Don't, don't let sinful pride uh, slip into your heart. In victory, recommit to the covenant. And remember how God views you in those moments. Remember that, uh, that, that God is love and that He works all things for your good. Remember that when you were born again, you were transformed from an enemy to a beloved adopted child of God. In other words, remember your identity in Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. That's who you are. That's what He's done in your life and He's done it out of love for you. And remember why all that is true. In other words, remember the cross. Remember what He's accomplished for you. Remember that out of love, He's atoned for your sins. And remember that He's done that in order to free you in order to walk with Him faithfully. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And then remember on the mountaintop to walk faithfully with Him. When you win, don't pridefully let, let it take you uh, to this place where you feel like you've, you've earned some sort of uh, satisfaction of your flesh or, or that you've earned being able to live sinfully or selfishly in that moment. When you win, humbly be grateful for the good that God has done for you. We go back to Ephesians 2 a lot around here. Ephesians 2, 8, and 10, 8 to 10 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those verses move from grace. That God has given you something good that you don't deserve. Why? Not for boasting, but for the good works that he's created you to do. It links grace to righteous living. Recommit to fear Him and to serve Him. Recommit to follow Him with greater abandon. Turn from any sin that is lingering in your heart and turn to Him with greater love and greater passion and greater zeal in that moment. Recommit to living according to His Word. Recommit to His covenant. On that victorious mountaintop of winning the NFL's Man of the Year award and and then winning the Super Bowl, Andrew Whitworth said this, The greatest thing I can give to anyone is for them to genuinely know that I truly care about them. You you live life loving people and caring about people, not meeting them where they are. And then you try to help them to get to the next step. That's where his mind was on that mountaintop experience of winning that award. He was thinking of living according to God's call on his life. But but I think the most, um, maybe from my perspective, the most beautiful Andrew Whitworth moment was at the Super Bowl. After the Rams won Super Bowl 56, we've seen, maybe some of you have seen that video, where Big Wit circles up all of his kids and his wife is hanging on his neck. And with all his kids circled around him, here's what he said. He could have done anything in that moment. He said, that's pretty cool, huh? Thank you all so much. I love you all. Hey, listen to me. That was daddy's last football game. That's it. No more. I'm going to be home with you guys, okay? promise. I'm going to be a better dad. I'm going to be around more. I'm going to coach the crap out of you boys. The son's got excited at that. We're going to have some fun, okay? I love y'all. That's how to win. That's how to go out on top. When you're on that victorious mountaintop, just take a moment for your soul. In victory, recommit to the covenant. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this example, this prophetic charge to recommit to your covenant. Thank you for the history that we have with you. This history of, of you being faithful to your end of, the, of this contract that you've made to us. You never leave us. You'd never forsake us. You're always with and for your elect, working good in our lives. You promise to preserve your church in all things. Lord, in those moments where we don't desire faithfulness, maybe we're on the mountaintop and we, we think it's an excuse to sin or an excuse to be prideful. We don't want to be faithful. May we recall your faithfulness to draw us back to follow you with greater zeal. Lord, may we be a people in, empowered by your faithfulness. May we be a people who faithfully walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.